We're in Genesis chapter 8. And for those of you who never thought we'd get through the New Testament, we're eight chapters into the Old Testament. Uh, I got to meet Elijah Richardson this morning. Elijah is two months old, roughly two months old. <laughs> He's a big boy. <laughs> I, uh, he asked me for a cup of coffee, and I said, no, I think you better, <laughs> think, think you better hold up with just a little guy. But uh, anyway, as we go through the book of Genesis, I have, it's been an interesting study, and we find ourselves right in the middle of the Noah flood, in chapter 7 of Genesis, we see that the waters prevailed 15 cubits or roughly uh, about 22 or 3 feet above the highest of the mountaintops. Now, think about that just for a moment. If it was a localized flood and you're Noah... Wouldn't it be easier just to have a big cattle drive instead of building an ark? If it's just a local flood, let's move these animals. Because it took Noah over a hundred years to build the ark. You would want to just go on a gigantic cattle drive if it was a localized flood. And you can have this mass migration of animals which would be much easier than building an ark. But throughout the history of man, there have been over 270 different cultures of people that document a worldwide flood similar to the flood spoken of in Genesis here. Of these accounts, 88% of these cultures speak of a favored family like Noah. 70% of them cite a boat or an ark as means of survival. 95% declared that destruction of human life and animal life came about in this flood. And also two-thirds say that the reason the flood came was because of the wickedness of man. The accounts say that uh, the boat or the ark when it came to its resting point, was high up in the mountains. And so, for whatever reason, God has caused the ark to come to rest near the mountaintops of Ararat. When Noah opened the door of the ark and he lets out all the animals, they have to work their way down to lower elevations. For some reason, God has caused the ark to come to rest what they think is around 14,000 feet in elevation. That's pretty high. Maybe God wanted to preserve the ark for some reason. We don't know. But anyway, let's look at Genesis chapter 8. We'll read the chapter, and then we'll have our comments on it. And don't hold me to 10 minutes. Where's Bill? He... <laughs> That 10 minutes wasn't my, that was you. <laughs> that wasn't me. If you're still here in an hour, you know that the 10 minutes was a rumor. Chapter 8. Then God remembered Noah 
and every living thing, and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the windows of the ark which he had made. Then he set on a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. And he also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned to the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and set out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. And it came to pass in six hundred, six hundred and the in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the although the imaginations, there we go, of every man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. What a chapter. We have in verse 1 where God says he remembers Noah. Not only Noah, God remembers all the animal life in the ark. When any man tries to speak or write words expressing God's emotions or feelings, there is always a searching for the right terms or the right words remembered Noah 
and we can think that perhaps God forgot Noah. No, he didn't forget Noah for a moment. But when you throw in different translations of the scriptures and the correctness of a verse or a thought, it can be sometimes difficult to understand. That is why it's very important, it's critical for us to choose a good translation of the scriptures versus a paraphrase. The New King James, which we use here, is a translation and it's taken from the Old King James. Makes sense. Now, we believe that it's probably one of the best translations without a doubt. But don't go home now and throw out your NIV, all right? But understand, the NIV is a paraphrase. It is not a direct translation. So bear that in mind when you read the NIV. But the writers in the NIV, they attempt to tell you what they think the scriptures mean. Well, I go with that to a degree, but I also think that uh, I can kind of separate what they mean for myself, so let me get a direct translation. But when we read God remembered, we have to understand that God hasn't forgotten Noah, but God is now going to once again turn his attention to Noah and all the critters that are on the ark. In total, Noah's time on the ark was just about 10 or 11 days over one year. That's a long time to be on a boat. That is a cruise that will not end. And delighted, Noah has to be delighted when God says to him, he remembers him, and now God is going to let Noah and his family off of the ark. You know they had to be excited. The rain has stopped. The, the fountains of the deep have stopped pouring out water. And now the ark, it rests on top of the mountains. Before the mountains came, uh, the, I should say before the floods came, the earth was considered to be relatively flat. It's when these fountains opened up and this upheaval of the flood that many um, Christian geologists believe is when the mountain ranges were formed and you have all this upheaval and all this upside down turning of the, uh, the stratas and everything and uh, the, the records of time really kind of got messed up. But anyway, verse 1 God makes a wind. He not only remembers Noah, but he makes a wind, a divine wind, a water-drying wind to begin to pass over the earth. In certain parts of the world today, we have dry winds that blow in off the desert, and they make things very hot and very dry if you're near these winds. Southern California has coastal breezes that blow almost constantly that keep the climate there very pleasant. 
until a Santa Ana wind blows. A Santa Ana wind is simply when the winds blow in off the deserts towards the ocean. And when these Santa Ana winds blow, they're usually very strong and they're very hot. And these winds will sometimes blow for as many as seven, even eight or nine days in a row. And they blow night and day and they blow very strong. These winds will sometimes reach speeds up to 50 or 60 miles per hour. And again, they're constant in all vegetation, trees, grass, shrubs, everything becomes extremely dry and dehydrated. And fires break out. Pyromaniac type fires break out because this is when they all love to go out and start their forest fires. You know, we got the Santa Ana winds blowing. We're going to go start fires, and they do. But these winds are relentless, and they carry sand and dust with them. And after a few days of these winds blowing, everything in your house, no matter how airtight you try to think it is, or everything in your car begins to be coated with a fine coat of dust, and it's miserable. You open up your lunch at work. There's a little sand in that sandwich there for you, you know? It's miserable. These winds blow in off the desert. But in verse 1, we have a miracle occurring here that we sometimes overlook. God has brought a dehydrating, water-drying wind off of water. How does God do that? Well, that's his business. We don't know how he did it. But he brings a wind to blow off of the water to dry up water. A dry wind off of water, a miracle that we don't always recognize, drying up the floodwaters on the earth. In verse 5 and 6 there, They tell us that the waters decreased because of the wind, and after 40 days, Noah opened the windows of the ark, and how everybody was delighted. (laughs) If you've been on a tight ship with hundreds of hundreds of animals, you're wanting a window to open up, let me tell you. Animals are animals. Some animals smell. No, strike that. Some animals stink more than other animals, okay? But each animal has its own particular odor. Noah and his family are very glad to open up those windows. Now, Lori and I, a few years back, we decided to get into the cattle business. We got four cows. But we wanted the pasture to be downwind from the house, not upwind. And the prevailing winds in this area come out of the southwest. So our pasture for the cows is in the northeast. You know, hey, the prevailing winds take the smell away. Not only do they take the smell away, animals for whatever reason, breed flies, house flies, large flies, little flies, horse flies, and they are definitely a pestilence. (laughs) 
and they're always near animals. And if possible at all, you want that away from your house. We did. You can be out in the most forbidden wilderness and desert in the world. Nothing, not even sagebrush will grow, you know what I'm saying? And you'll come across a little dead critter, and what will be on it? Flies. And you go, where do they come from? <laughs> Got a little distractor. Strike all that. It did to me, maybe. But during Hurricane Katrina, we were down along the coast. There was no insects along the coast, you know. They'd all been blown inland. It was great to go down to the coastal beaches and have no flies or gnats or anything because they'd all been blown away. And I said, yeah, this is pretty good. I thought I was done with that. But anyway, back to the ark. The wind has blown for 40 days. The water is receding. Noah opens a window, and he sends out a raven and a dove. A raven. That's a polite way of saying a buzzard or a vulture. And what do they do? They, fe they feed off of dead flesh. You can drive down a country road, and in front of you, perhaps a dead possum or something. You ever seen a dead possum? Well, there's a few around here. And what do you see feeding off of that dead roadkill? Buzzards, vultures, ravens. Out west, uh, the California condor is a protected bird. And all it is is a vulture. Why don't they let it die? I don't know. But these vultures and buzzards, they have a purpose. They're the world's garbage disposal. But anyway, the dove, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, happens to be Calvary Chapel's logo. Oh, we have doves everywhere in Calvary Chapel. The dove is a symbol of God's Spirit descending to man. Our dove is a descending dove. Some of you may wonder, why does Calvary Chapel use a dove as its uh, logo or its recognized form? I'm glad you asked that. Good question. When Jesus approached John the Baptist to be baptized, let me read you a couple verses in Matthew chapter 3. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was important to God the Father. It was important to Jesus that John the Baptist baptized Jesus. John protests. He feels unworthy. Uh, to baptize his Lord. But Jesus simply says, John, just, just do it. Just allow it to happen. And do this for me, John. And John is obedient. And then, though, at Jesus' baptism, we have two signs from God that he is pleased with Jesus. The Spirit of God, i.e., the Holy Spirit, descends like a dove. 
and it alights upon Jesus. This is a sign to those that are there at the baptism, that are witnessing this baptism, that this is their Messiah. This is the Holy One of Israel that the Holy Spirit is upon. Here at Madison County, Calvary Chapel, we want to have anything that can help you <laughs> to remember the Lord and so forth. So as you drive up lovely Teresa, we have three crosses out there that you can see right as you drive ahead. Aren't they lovely? We have crosses. And then you come inside our lovely metal building. And we have a stained glass dove right there in the foyer. And it's lovely. So we got all the Christian icons you could want around here. As I speak, ah, we got a dove behind me. <laughs> and today, as we partake in our potluck, on the kitchen wall, we have a handcrafted cedar wood dove so we're covered with icons around here so there's no reason for you not to be holy here because we got everything you need see the descending dove at Jesus's baptism was not enough though because God the Father didn't declare from a voice from heaven this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and that's of course, better than any icon or anything else. But back to Noah. We have Noah sending out a dove from the ark, and the dove is a clean animal. Later on in Israel's history, if a family could not afford a lamb for a, a sin offering, for a Passover offering, they were allowed to bring two doves. You could bring two doves, which was much cheaper if you were very poor. I mean, it was much cheaper to bring two doves. And you could do that. But the dove is a symbol of God's Holy Spirit. And the dove goes out of the ark. The dove returns. And one week later, Noah sends another dove out. And in the evening, it returns, and it has an olive twig in its mouth. Noah receives the dove. Now, that's not just good terminology in Scripture. Noah reaches up and receives the dove. He is receiving God's Holy Spirit, God's provision for him. Noah is an example for us as to how we are to receive God's Holy Spirit. God gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask. But to receive a gift, you have to take it. God can offer us all the gifts in the world, but until you receive that gift, it is just a gift. It is not yours. You must reach out and take it. The dove going out, testing the face of the waters, testing the earth to see if it's ready for habitat. The dove is sent out twice, and the second time 
or the third time, it doesn't come back. This is so practical. And that is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives many times. So practical. Noah learns of the conditions of the world if he can now exit the ark because of a little dove that goes out. We read in John's Gospel that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. He will be our helper. And oftentimes, when we do not know which way to go, right or left, or stay the course the way we're going already, already the Holy Spirit will lead us if we will simply allow him. Noah allows a bird, a dove, a little symbol of God's spirit to speak to him about the conditions of the world and whether or not he can even leave the ark. God is using his spirit in the form of a dove to speak to Noah. God also uses a dove to announce his Holy Spirit being upon Jesus. The dove is a picture of God's grace going out to man. And if our doves here at Calvary Chapel are a reminder that God's Spirit is upon us, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We don't worship the dove. <laughs> I had one guy come and he said, how come you people at Calvary Chapel worship the dove? I said, they didn't know we did. <laughs> we don't worship the dove. We, we just sort of like it. <laughs> but it is nothing more than a picture of God's grace going to man. Noah, his family, and all the animals leave the ark. And it's all because a dove has brought back an olive twig in his mouth. But once out of the ark, it's good to look at what Noah does. Noah, one of the first thing he does, once out of the ark, he builds an altar and he takes one of every clean animal, which was roughly 140 animals, and he sacrifices them to the Lord. This is the first mention of altar in Scripture. There's references that there was a place of sacrifice even way back with Adam and Eve, but this is the first time altar is mentioned. Consider that Noah takes one out of seven clean animals and sacrifices to the Lord. Noah does this before he has a chance to look around at the environment, the conditions of the world, to even see if these animals have a habitat that they can reproduce in. He is taking a tremendous need in his life for survival, and he's sacrificing it to the Lord. A lot of questions are unanswered for Noah. He doesn't know what life is going to be like after the flood here on the earth. Yet he sacrifices one out of seven of these animals to the Lord. The Lord is pleased with this. 
And when our offerings and when our gifts are truly a sacrifice, we too are pleasing to the Lord. Unfortunately, most of us, and self-included here, we give to the Lord out of our abundance. We don't give out of our need. Our scripture reading that Bill read was uh, out of Chronicles, where David said, I will offer no sacrifice to God that costs me nothing. David is simply saying, I'm not going to take my gifts and offerings and present them to God if they don't have a value, a true value to me. I won't even bother to do it. And God is pleased with that. God is pleased with Noah. He's pleased with David. Jesus was in the temple. And he's there with the disciples. And Jesus notices one widow who goes and puts in two copper coins in the temple treasury or in the offering box. To her, that was an enormous sacrifice because it's all she owned. She gave everything she owned unto the Lord. As we give our tithes and offerings, hopefully we're not doing so to receive back from God. You hear a lot of talk about that, you know, uh, giving offerings to receive from God. But uh, I hope that's not the reason that I give offerings. I hope I do it simply to please my God. But God is well pleased with the sacrifices and offerings of Noah. I think that should be our desire too. You may have noticed we do not pass an offering plate here. If you haven't noticed, we don't pass an offering plate here. <laughs> and one of the reasons we do not pass an offering plate we want each and every person who does give the opportunity to give in a way and in a method that's not show and tell, but it's a private matter between you and God that you can please God with your offering. That's important to us. We think our little offering boxes are much better to receive the f way to receive the funds then pass the hat up and down the aisles. As a church, we know we have the responsibility to use those offerings in a good steward-type way, and we try to do that. We make efforts to do that. But sacrifices and offerings were very important to Noah because it's the first thing he does when he gets off the ark. He wants to show his gratitude to God for preserving him and his family. He builds an altar. And was it necessary to kill 140 animals? To Noah it was. It was important to Noah that he take out of his substance and give it to God. We have yet to beg and plead for money here at Calvary. Uh, 
I hope we never, ever fall into that trap. <laughs> we feel that it's important to you to be giving to God, and we try to provide you a way to do that where it's simply between you and God. We want to try to keep it that way. But when we give, and this is really the critical thing, give sacrificially in some way. Give out of your basic need in life. Because if we give out of our abundance, it's like giving a waiter or a waitress a tip. That's all it is. Give sacrificially and be like Noah. Be pleasing to God with your offerings. That really should be our motivation when we give to please God with our gift. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your blessings upon our lives. And sometimes, Lord, it's hard for us to even distinguish between a need and a want in our lives because we are so blessed. But, Lord, we want our offerings and our gifts to you to be pleasing to you. Provide us a way. Show us how to do that between yourself and ourself, Lord. Just give us that opportunity to be giving out of our substance, out of our need. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings, for truly we are blessed people. You tell us it's more blessed to give than receive, and we've learned that lesson, Lord, or hopefully we've learned that lesson. But, Lord, we look for opportunities. We look for ways that our giving will be sacrificial, not just giving you a tip, not just offering you out of our abundance, but offering you from our heart. So help us to do that, Lord, and thank you again for your great blessings upon our life. And may our lives be pleasing to you. We pray for this. We ask for this. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, if.